Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. For this episode, we're continuing our examination of scenarios relating to the future of health, all of which feature in our annual supplement, What If?, which is available online at economist.com slash whatif2021. This month, we'll ask, what would personalised nutrition mean for public health? You can well imagine this being quite widespread 10 years from now. How could mRNA, the technology used in some coronavirus vaccines, be put to use by biohackers? You could use something like a nicotine patch, which can receive instructions from a computer and express those instructions into your body as mRNA. And could an artificial intelligence ever win the Nobel Prize for medicine? All that, I think, is very, very likely. It seems like we're on the cusp of it already. The pandemic has forced everyone to pay very close attention to their health in recent months. Obsessing about diets, by contrast, is something people have been doing for centuries. The Greek philosopher Pythagoras, for example, advised his followers to eat bread, honey and vegetables, and to avoid meat, fish and beans. In recent years, we've had the keto diet, the paleo diet, and a vogue for intermittent fasting, otherwise known as missing out breakfast, as far as I can tell. But could science be about to put an end to faddish diets? As researchers learn more about how food is metabolised, they're starting to understand why a diet that works for one person may not suit another. Instead, they're working towards the idea of personalised nutrition, dietary advice that takes account of the differences between individuals, and in particular, variations in the makeup of the population of trillions of microbes in the gut, known as the microbiome. Hi, Paz. Welcome. Thank you for coming today. We're really excited to have you here for this groundbreaking study called PREDICT. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Several large-scale studies are closely monitoring the food that participants eat and how it affects their bodies. One example is the PREDICT study being carried out by a health startup called Zoe. We want to see how long your body takes to digest different foods. So the way that we're going to determine that with the blue muffins is I'm going to ask you over the next couple of days just to monitor your bowel actions and and report back to me when you see blue in your stool. (laughs) That's going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a bit of an enviable task, but that really helps us to determine. PREDICT study is the largest intervention nutrition study of its kind. It's essentially there to quantify the personalised responses to food in thousands of people so that we can personalise nutrition for millions of people. Tim Spector is Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London and one of the founders of ZOE. And this is an ongoing process that's been going on for the last four years and is continuing to evolve as we get more and more participants. And we're using this data initially starting giving people identical meals and then spreading it out to getting tens of thousands of people to log all their meals. At the same time, we're looking at their responses on their body, on their 
blood sugar levels, on their blood fat levels, and the effects on their gut microbes. And we put all that data together in AI algorithms and feedback that information to individuals to allow them to score foods and give them individual choices about which particular foods are most likely to suit their metabolism, which should help their health going forward long term. And they actually have some guidelines on how to eat that don't involve just calories or cutting out fats or sugars, which is very old fashioned. So what are the potential health benefits that we're looking at here? Having a healthy gut microbiome really helps you across the board. So it's crucial for your immune system. So you're more likely to fight off infections and COVID, etc. Have a better response to vaccines. You're more likely to be slimmer and gain less weight when eating identical amounts of food. You'll have be less prone to hunger, pangs. Your mental state will be improved. You're less likely to get into the real lows of depression and it has various effects that you can attribute to preventing diabetes and many other inflammatory conditions, which we're only just touching upon. So it's very wide ranging, really. It's best to see the microbiome as a, a new organ in our bodies that's really vital for our health and is essentially a chemical factory that you really want to get the most potential out of. So what do you imagine this sort of future looks like? Am I scanning my food with an app every day or doing tests every month? What does it mean in practice? I think to optimise it, it is going to have to be an ongoing process where you find out where you are at the moment, you get dietary advice through an app that tells you at the moment this is what your body needs for someone of your age and in this particular environment. You'll get lists of foods that are scored and then you'll repeat that every six months and so you'll get a, a new score and that will be based on your new microbiome results, which might have improved by then. So I think it's going to be an ongoing process, a bit like having your blood pressure checked. And people will get used to this. And they'll be using these apps really in restaurants and in supermarkets just to scan barcodes or menus. And instantly they'll be given rankings of choice or alternatives that they want that would best suit your own metabolism. For our annual scenarios edition, What If, we've taken this idea and imagined what personalised nutrition might look like in the 2030s. You can well imagine this being quite widespread 10 years from now. Slavea Chankova is healthcare correspondent at The Economist and the author of this scenario. I think what will happen is that there will be maybe half a dozen or so broad metabolites, so, you know, People who do well on sugar but don't do well on fat. People who do better on fat don't do so well on sugar. So there will be kind of meals and processed foods customized for these. What would that mean for the food industry then? Would that mean they'd be selling less junk food but they could charge more for this sort of you know carefully optimized food? We'll probably have fewer brands, but within each brand of a processed food, we'll probably see kind of these metabotype varieties. And then, you know, you go to the supermarket and then maybe you scan with your phone and it says like out of these four different varieties of a Mars bar <laughs> or, or such, here, here's the one that's best for you. I think that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, the food industry is obviously keen to deliver a stuff that's good and tasty for people but it will probably take time because not not everyone will be on board i mean people buy junk food because they like it so um 
weaning people off that unless they can make the healthy foods taste really good will will probably take time given that there are potentially some quite big health benefits here what could governments do to encourage adoption of this sort of technology the governments can subsidize it so if you have a smartwatch or something like this which is kind of what monitors your blood lipids or blood sugar and then links links that uh, with with the personalized nutrition app you can imagine governments subsidizing those or giving them away for free, doing the same with the fees for the apps. Uh, you can well imagine, you know, you go to your um, doctor, your uh, general practitioner or family physician, and they say, you know, things are not looking good. You you know, have pre-diabetes. You really have to clean up your way of eating. You may imagine getting a prescription of a personalized nutrition plan Maybe your device, you get it for free, you get, you know, some help using all of this. Because eventually, you know, we, we will just treat food as medicine, right? Because right now, a lot of the diseases are caused, not completely, but to a large degree by poor nutrition. Right, I see what you mean. So this is a sort of step towards treating food as part of, of our overall healthcare program. So presumably health insurers might get involved with this too. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they already do. You see that with exercise, for example. Some health insurers, in America at least, will give you vouchers or maybe possibly lower your premium if you sign up for a gym plan and you go regularly. So you can imagine that sort of thing happening with um, the personalized nutrition plans uh, if, if you are very obedient and follow what you're told to eat, then you may get some discounts or perks. Um, I'm sure they'll get creative with that because, you know, the, if the benefits are so big, you can imagine they, they will want people to, to, to really sign up and, and keep up with this. One of the striking success stories to come out of the pandemic is how the scientific community took a promising but unproven technology and used it to develop extremely effective vaccines in record time. The technology in question, which is found in the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines, uses something called messenger RNA or mRNA. So what is it exactly? Messenger RNA is a molecule that is sort of basic to life as it has evolved on Earth. Hal Hodson is The Economist's technology correspondent and the author of a scenario set in 2029 that imagines where mRNA technology might go. It is used to shuttle, as the name suggests, messages between the DNA in cells and the rest of the cellular machinery that produces proteins. So you could think of it as a way of writing down the biological messages that sort of make life tick. So what does that mean it could do? If you can create your own messenger RNA, what does that allow you to do? Well, the easiest way to think about this is by thinking about what the mRNA vaccines have done. There are two that are in wide use at the moment, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And in the most simple terms, what those vaccines, what those molecules of mRNA do is they send a message to the cells in your body telling them to make spike protein. And spike protein is the sort of agglomeration of proteins. It's not just one protein, it's many proteins that adorns the outside of the coronavirus that is causing the pandemic. 
And the reason that this is so important is that if you can get a message to the cell saying, make this, then once your cells start making it, then your immune system sees it and it starts making antibodies for that spike protein or rather against that spike protein. And the reason that that matters is that when the real virus, if the real virus shows up in your system, if you get infected with SARS-CoV-2, if you get COVID, then your immune system is prepared and is prepared in a very specific way to fight off infection. So before the pandemic, mRNA therapies were being developed to treat all sorts of other things. And there's now hope that, you know, now that it's been shown to work, that this could be used to treat other conditions as well. So what sorts of things might mRNA be used for in the coming years? Well, in principle, it's almost anything where the body is producing a protein. And given that bodies are just great big bags of protein and water in essence. There's a lot of possible ideas. The ones that are furthest along are things called cancer vaccines, which basically it shows your immune system a very specific sort of message that is about a tumour in your body. And the reason that tumours stay in your body and are dangerous is because they, they have evolved to mask themselves from the immune system. And so the idea is that if you can show your immune system this is actually in you, then the immune system will start to make antibodies against that cancer and go and do what the immune system does, which is sort of eat it up and destroy it and protect you from it. And there's loads of others, including potential treatments for heart disease and neurological disorders. But the broad principle and the thing to bear in mind, the, the reason that this is so interesting and potentially transformative, to use a, a word I don't use very often, is that by sending messages to the body, you're actually distributing the production of protein to the human's own cells. Instead of making these proteins in some factory somewhere and putting them in a drug and sending them to pharmacies and doctors, you're getting the body to do all that work sort of for free. And that's potentially incredibly efficient and exciting and cheap. So you're essentially using the cells of the body as a, as a drug factory inside the body, producing the proteins you want when and where you want them. So your scenario alludes to those other medical uses, but it then sort of uh, swerves in a different direction and it starts to imagine what might be called unofficial uses of this mRNA technology by biohackers. So how might that come about? The idea is that because so much money and effort and time has been spent building out supply chains for this pretty much novel production system whereby, as mentioned, your cells become a factory, that you might start to repurpose that infrastructure. All of the downstream systems that make things like nucleotides, the lipid nanoparticles that encapsulate the mRNA. And so the idea is that in the 2024 Olympics in Paris... A group of endurance athletes secretly crafts an mRNA molecule using the very same kinds of infrastructure and supplies that have been used to build the COVID vaccines and gets an edge and wins a bunch of medals in a way that is suspicious. And there's obviously at this point no testing in place to kind of catch this sort of cheating, which is what it is, and that this kind of is one of the first signals that people are able to use mRNA in a much more kind of less pharmaceutical, more, you know, hacking in a garage sort of way. And in the scenario, this leads on to sort of biology students in Serbia uh, mucking around with mRNA molecules in order to try and enhance their learning abilities. And I imagine a sort of very controversial group of mothers in Texas who are dosing themselves with mRNA in order to try and enhance the cognitive capacity of the children that they, they are planning to have. It sounds a lot like the open source community. Is that the sort of idea that you have? 
Yes, it's that a group of people who all believe that this is a good thing find each other on the internet and essentially just start to exchange ideas. And you can think of a lot of barriers to this kind of thing. Nobody really wants to take lots of injections, for one thing. It's kind of unpleasant. Even when the benefit is you won't die of COVID, people, some people are hesitant. And if the benefits are smaller, then you really get into a, a problem there. But I imagine that uh, basically, the, the technology starts to iterate and people start to improve on delivery methods. Um, and one of the ideas is that you could use something like a nicotine patch, which had the kind of fundamental ingredients of mRNA molecules within it. But there's all kinds of flexible electronics now, which would let you build a patch. And this is all hypothetical. I, you know, we should be clear, this does not exist today. But it is not too much of a stretch to imagine a patch which sits on your body, which can receive instructions from a different computer and express those instructions into your body as mRNA. So in a way, that patch is translating between computer code and human biological code. Now, it's important to point out that mRNA in the body, whether naturally occurring or put there by humans, is a short-lived molecule used to send messages to the protein-making machinery inside cells. It does not alter the DNA of those cells. But the idea that in future, humans might wish to permanently modify their DNA, a process called gene therapy, is a staple of science fiction. Some authors even imagine transhumanist futures in which mankind has splintered into several incompatible species. Last month on The World Ahead, we spoke to science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. I asked him about his approach to human gene editing in his books and whether he thinks ordinary unmodified humans are just more relatable characters. It's somewhat the latter, and it also, I think, speaks to my own limitations as a person of imagination. I don't feel very imaginative, to tell you the truth, and most of my science fiction novels are set in pretty near futures. So the one of the furthest cast out, the novel I called 2312, because it happens in that year, I had a kind of subspeciesization going on amongst humans the way that we've seen among dogs. So that this is partly a matter of breeding and partly a matter of genetic um, um, modifications. But I, I guess I'm, uh, this is kind of old fashioned, but I'm thinking that to be a healthy human, what more do you want? I mean, it's as good as it gets. This is a maybe a little foolish or short sighted, but it's how I feel. It strikes me that we can we can imagine, you know, what better rockets might look like or better computers. When it comes to biomedical advances, which do appear in many of your books, the range of possibilities seems much broader. So how do you think about that? Let's say right now we already have H.G. Wells's Eloi and Morlocks, a subspeciation of humanity, in that the richest people on the planet who have access to the best health care are probably living on average... 20 years longer than the poorest people on the planet. And I'm just guessing there, and it might even be in worse. Well, that discrepancy is the start of subspeciation in, a, in a, the most dramatic way of how long do you live. But that's just a sign of how messed up our world is right now. The uh, inequality, as severe as it is, is, a, is not just a practical thing where there's lots of extremely angry, immiserated people on this planet. But it's a moral crime so that nobody can be comfortable in a world like this. So there's some kind of Hera Arendt um, mass responsibility, mass guilt for something that we're all accepting as being normal. It's not normal. 
And so it's an evolving situation that everybody needs to take on. Whether it's through personalised food recommendations or new kinds of vaccine, modern medicine is being revolutionised by technology. But it's not just through new forms of treatment. Technology may also be able to accelerate medical research. For example, through the use of machine learning, a form of artificial intelligence. We took this idea to the limit in another of our scenarios, which imagined a situation in which the Nobel Prize for Medicine is awarded to an AI that is built to perform medical research. The AI is trained originally to solve a completely different problem. Gilad Amit, our science correspondent, is the author of this scenario, which is set in the year 2036. But it is taking in information from the scientific literature. It is processing the mountains of academic publications and processing data. And it is able to, in this scenario, hypothesize a potential new mechanism whereby antibiotics working together could target some of these more dangerous, resistant strains of bacteria. Now, how plausible is this, that a machine learning system could actually suggest new avenues for antibiotics in particular, but uh, but new medicines in general? Is that a plausible thing that might happen in the next 15 years? AIs are already used in the discovery of new antibiotics because, again, the sheer volume of, of literature is difficult to pass, and AIs are very good at recognising patterns. And in 2020, a team at MIT were able to make use of an AI's predictions to discover a new antibiotic. They deliberately were looking for something that didn't share chemical properties with known antibiotics, something that operated in a new way. And they discovered something called halicin, which is an effective antibiotic. It's not a, a miracle cure of the kind that we propose in, uh, in the story, but it was a very effective antibiotic to some extent discovered with AI. Your story talks about the controversy that ensues. So obviously not everybody likes the idea of giving a Nobel Prize to a, an artificial intelligence. What happens? So scientists take to the streets. They flock to Stockholm with placards, with banners. They barricade around the Philharmonic Hall where the ceremony and and prize ceremony is to take place. And they protest the notion that their jobs, their livelihoods, recognition for what is considered to be a fundamentally human achievement, discovery and inspiration, and that a computer or that an AI is getting recognition for this in their place. And there has always been a sense of worry among people in various occupations for centuries that technology is going to take their jobs. In some cases, it is, it's very well-founded fears. And I think scientists have for a long time stayed outside that discussion. And the tide is rising ever higher and lapping at their heels at the moment as AI is used ever more widely in different scientific fields. Given the growing use of artificial intelligence in many aspects of life, from voice assistance to face recognition to helping you write emails, perhaps the idea of an AI winning a Nobel Prize isn't as implausible as it first sounds. Here's Kim Stanley Robinson again. I think it's quite plausible. Let's say that the name AI, artificial intelligence, is distracting and obscuring what's going on which is human beings inventing machines and algorithms, in other words, hardware and software, that can do remarkable big data analyses that could not be performed before because of 
the speed of the computation has gotten so stupendous and the algorithms have got so clever. So in your scenario, the Nobel Prize ought to go to the programmers, to the people who built the machines and who people who wrote the programs. And so that means that this would be a good thing. Possibly the Nobel Prize in that case would be given to some hundreds of people, let's say, who had collaborated probably over decades to make the AI that achieved that new antibiotic. All that, I think, is very, very likely. It seems like we're on the cusp of it already. And with our scenarios on personalized nutrition and mRNA therapies, we've also built on real science that's happening right now and tried to imagine where things might go next. So what do our other guests think will be the biggest change in healthcare over the coming decades? Starting with Slavea Chankova of The Economist. It will get worse before it gets better. So obesity, diabetes are rising and they're rising very, very sharply right now. We will see that happening for a while before it starts getting better. I do think that personalized nutrition is going to really turn the tide. Very optimistic this is going to happen. Hal Hodson. I think that because the cost of basically monitoring physiology is coming down, a change that will happen is a shift towards preventative medicine, whereby essentially you, your body, even your mind are getting scanned a lot more. And that to me is a complete shift in the way that societies look after people. Tim Spector of Zoe. I think we're going to be focusing on quality of life, not longevity, but I'm hoping that we can focus on nutrition as the common driver of the vast majority of health problems that are modifiable at the moment. And if we get that right, we can be in a much better place in 20 years than we are now. And finally, Gilad Amit. So I think it will be ever more involvement of AI in clinical settings, not necessarily through the discovery of of a magical new compound, but augmenting the capacities of physicians, allowing them both to sort of get access to more information more readily than, than they do at the moment, and also allowing them to examine their own prejudices, their own decision-making processes more thoroughly. Thank you to Gilad Amit, Tim Spector, Hal Hodson, Slavea Chankova and Kim Stanley Robinson. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. This episode was produced by Simon Jarvis and edited by Sandra Schmueli. You can read all of these scenarios and much more online at economist.com slash whatif2021. If you're not already a subscriber, you're missing out. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.